Well, it's been over a month or close to a month since we were last in the Gospel of John, and today we're in John chapter 15. So if your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. As we begin, imagine with me that you are totally and completely paralyzed from head to toe, unable to move and help yourself, but you can talk. And imagine with me that a friend that has known you for a long time realizes your dire situation and commits to be there, to, to live with you, to do whatever is needed, whatever you needed. How could you, in this state, honor this friend if a stranger came to visit? Would you honor his generosity and strength by trying to get up yourself, trying to sit up and move and, and say hello? No, you can't. You're paralyzed. You're unable to do that. No, you would... You would ask your friend, please come and lift me up. Please, please put a pillow behind my head so that I can see and I can visit with this visitor. And in the process of you asking these questions, the visitor learns by your request that, that you're helpless and that your friend is, is an intimate friend, a strong and kind friend. And you glorify your friend by needing him, by, by asking for help, by counting on him. In John 15, 5, in our passage this morning, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are really paralyzed. Without Christ, we are capable of no Christ-exalting good. Do you realize this morning that you need God Paul says in Romans 7, 18, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We need Christ. We need to depend on him. This morning, we're gonna talk about dependence here in John 15, verses one through 17. And so if you've turned there, follow with me as I read John chapter 15, starting at verse one. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no end than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus is talking about growth in these verses. He's talking about fruit. Fruit comes up over and over in these verses. It's horticulture. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you remember from the prior chapters, he's already informed them. He's, he's leaving. And they will need to change. They cannot stay the same because if there's no change, you will continue to decay. You know, this world is an escalator that's going down. Right? You stand before, before an escalator, it just keeps going. Down. Doesn't stop. This world is decaying. And we're left here to serve God and to grow. To call others to forsake this world and to serve him. We're called to go up an escalator that only moves down. We're called to change called to become more like Jesus. This is sanctification. We have a massive potential for change in our lives because of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus informed us in John 14, because of his life that is in ours. And we read about it in Galatians 5, right? Where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, forgiving, kindness, that's unselfishness, goodness, that's transparency and integrity, faithfulness, that's courage and Gentleness, self-control. Jesus is saying, I'm the key to that. Let me put it another way. How, how can a selfish person become unselfish? How can a controlling and manipulative person become a liberator? How can a cowardly person become courageous? How can a whiner become a giver? How can a worrier become a rock? How can a, a bigot become someone who understands? That's the question. How can we change? I mean, we all want to change, and the world is screaming at us to change, right? Have you walked into a bookstore lately? Any, any secular bookstore you walk in there, there's hundreds of thousands of books that say, this is how you change. Think this way. Do this. Here's the magical way. Be indifferent. Be positive. The world's screaming at us to change. But in the Bible, there's an extremely different way of change, and I'm going to spoil it for you. It doesn't depend solely on you. It's not a secular way of change. It's not just morality or a checklist of to-dos. The Bible, in particular, this passage this morning, says you need to have a vital connection with Jesus Christ. You have to have an organic connection to him. Jesus says to us this morning, the only way you will be different is for you to be forever connected to me. You need my life pumping through yours. And there are maybe many of you here that came to Christianity. You came to church hoping, just hoping that you could overcome some bad habits. Some destructive habits even that affect just more than yourself. They expect your, affect your spouse or your friends or coworkers. And you, you desire, you want to live a good life. You, you want to even do it for the right reason. You want to please God and you want to please him with your life, but you're going at it the wrong way. You're tapped into the wrong thing. 
And I want to walk through this passage this morning in our time that we have. There are two things I want you to see in these 17 verses. The first is that we need to abide in Christ. The only way we'll become more like Jesus and to change is to abide in him. And we'll experience this magnificent outcome of abiding. And that's the second thing, the benefits of what happens when we abide. And we should see then the motivation for love and the example of love. And it should prompt us to love one another more faithfully. So this is the plan. This is what I've been praying about this week, that God would use our time together to strengthen us, to encourage us, to become more like Jesus. I've been praying that we would come away with a better understanding of what abiding is. So before we begin, would you join me in prayer? God, we we come before your throne and, and God, I recognize and affirm again that we need you. God, I need you this time. I need you right now. I need you to speak to your people. I ask that you would take your word this morning and you would open it up and that we would understand it. Without just uh, acquire head knowledge, though, God, I pray that we would allow your word to affect us. I pray that we would be receptive to, to change this morning. God, may you be the teacher in this place. We, we come this morning not to check off the thing of the list of the to-do, but to worship you. And now, Father, we worship you through the preaching of your word. We thank you for this time. May you be honored and glorified in it. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, we need to abide in Christ. Being a Christian means we abide in him. Jesus is very clear here in these verses. He says in just verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he continues on through it. And Jesus is the vine, God God the father is the vine dresser and we're the branches. And if the branch is really joined to the vine, to the stem, then life comes into the branch so that the branch can grow. But if the branch is not growing, if there's no blossoms, there's no fruit, there's no signs of life, then it's not truly joined to the vine. It may seem apparently joined. It might be superficially joined. But it's not organically joined. Right? Is is an apple tree an apple tree if I go out and I nail apples to that tree? It looks like it from a distance, like fruit has grown, But if you watched me nail them to the tree, you would know that it really didn't. So it may look like many Christians are are, are joined cosmetically. They're they're, they're part of Christ, but, but really there's no fruit. There's no life. Because the only way growth is to happen is if we're joined to Christ, to abide in him. The vine and the branches is the image of our relationship with Christ. And this is so critical for us to understand. Jesus says here with this illustration that his relationship to a Christian, his relationship to someone who's been converted, who's been part of the family of God, is more intimate than any other relationship that we can find on earth. This is much more intimate a relationship than between an employer and employee. It's it's more intimate than a teacher and a student. It's more intimate than a, a parent and a child. It's more intimate than a husband and a wife. 
And the reason why is because in all those examples that I gave you, the best that can come from it is influence. And in some of those relationships, the influence is very great, but it cannot touch the magnitude of the relationship between Christ and the Christian. Jesus says, I, I don't just influence your nature, I, I enter your nature. There's an interpenetration, there's a transformation. God coming into our lives is more intimate than any other relationship that we can find on earth. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's a part participation of his nature into our nature and a transformation of our nature. This is extremely intimate. And the only way to escape decay in our world is through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And what can be more revolutionary than that? This is intimate. This is the reason why we say that Christianity is not just simply a set of beliefs or a set of ethics that you adopt for life. Folks, that's easy. No, it's an interpenetration of nature. It's a change of heart at the core. And this is what theologians call regeneration. Being born again is not a, a mystical, emotional experience. Being born again means your heart has been uprooted and replanted into a new vine, a new soil. The very life of heaven has come into your life. You have union with Christ. You know, as Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And so Jesus is the true vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser, the, the gardener, and we are the branches. Now in verse 2, a question comes when we read, because there are two types of branches here. There are those branches that are that I just outlined and walked through who are connected to Christ, who are receiving the, the nutrients for life, and then, then there are those branches that, that do not have a deep connection to Christ. And he says they'll be taken away. This is a verse cited by many as proof that a believer can lose their salvation along with verse 6. And the first problem with that interpretation is that it avoids other clear teaching throughout Scripture. Clear teaching that's here throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus said about himself in, in John 10, and the Good Shepherd, he says in 10, 28, I, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We, we just sang about this. No one can pluck us out of his hand. And also John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God saves who he pleases and he keeps those he saves. We cannot do anything to receive salvation. We cannot do anything to lose our salvation. It is all of God. Jesus is alluding to something here. That some branches, some, some people actually look like that they're externally connected. They call themselves Christians. They attend church, they put on the right display, they say the right words, they engage in all the activities that Christians do. But when the rubber meets the road, there's no life going to this branch from the vine. They're professors, but not possessors. And that's why he says here, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. There are branches atta attached to Jesus by their words, by their, 
by their actions, by their money, by their church attendance, but they're really not attached. They're not his, they're imposters. Believers abide. Believers remain. What does, it, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? The Greek verb meno means to dwell or remain. J.C. Ryle in his commentary explains it this way. He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of consistent, close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our heart to him and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us to, is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. And there are two ways in these verses, in this passage, that believers can abide. Two ways. There's also ways we grow, and we'll get to the second one, the pruning, but the first is abiding in him. We remain in him. What does it mean to, to remain, to abide? How do we apply that? Literally, it means to depend on him. To depend on him. Friends, maybe you're here and you're looking at your life and you see that you've not grown as much as you like. You're struggling with bitterness, with worry, or some other area. What you have to do is have his words remain in you and his love remain in you. That's how you depend on him. That is how you cling to the vine and draw his love and his words and draw out his life. How do you do that? You're asking that question, a very practical one. How do you do that? You know, it's one thing to, to read the Bible for inspiration or to read the Bible for doctrinal instruction. It's another thing to read the Bible and let the words of, of Scripture dwell within you, to abide in you. And unless you dwell in his word, you will not change. You will not grow because you don't have the juice. What does it mean to have the word of God remain in you? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, there's a difference between reading the Bible for inspiration and reading for doctrinal knowledge and letting the word dwell and remain in you. You digest the word. You, you take it in and, and let it become part of you. You let the word come inside of you and become part of your life. You, you see life now through the word. So how does that affect life? Well, when you're sitting around work and you hear that they're cutting back 40% of jobs in your factory, and everyone around you is freaking out. In fact, they're, they're angry. You hear it, you know, they're up in arms. What are we going to do? Don't they even care about us? We've, we've given our life to this company. Don't they care? How can they treat us this way? And you hear this. You're sitting there at lunch. Everyone is scared. But you, believer, Christian brother, Christian sister, you let the word dwell richly. What do you do in your heart? You preach to your heart. And you immediately say what the word says. Don't be anxious about anything, right? 
I mean, look at the birds of the air. God takes care of them. Are we not much more valuable than they? That's what the word says. And you abide in his word. You remain in his word. And your heart is then not dictated by the world around you, screaming at you to not trust God. No, you remain in him. You depend on him. You are literally a preacher to your heart. We're all called to be preachers, right? You didn't know that, did you? Even women, preach to your heart. Preach to yourself what you know to be true. And you dwell on God's word and begin to roll over in your mind and over in your mind. You abide in his word. And what happens? God's word affects you. You're not looking at the world the way everyone else does because you've allowed the word to affect you. And so you may go home and update your Facebook status, but as a believer, you're not complaining against your employer. No, you praise God for his continued faithfulness in your life. You abide in his word. What it means to have the Bible dwell in you richly and his words remain in you is let the Bible Let the Bible address you. Let the Bible argue with you. Let the Bible preach to you. Let the Bible come and be a part of you. Do you know how to do that, church? I want you to learn this. If you don't know, this is of great importance to us as, as a pastoral staff and as an elder board. We want you to learn this. Because it's an incredible experience to allow God's word to affect our lives. Not just hear it read and Sundays and occasionally look at it in the morning, but actually allow it to affect us, to change us. And it's a discipline of reflection and meditation and memorization. We have to be in God's word, not because we're checking off the list for reading of that day, but because we need it. Just like we need air to breathe and food to eat and and water to drink, we need his word. It's a discipline of study. It's how you take the word and make it a part of your life. You, You think it, you breathe it in, you digest it, you live it. Church, this is what it means to abide in him, to remain in him. Here's the second thing we should abide in here, and Jesus tells us in verse 9 and 10. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We need to abide in his love. We need to remain in his love. We need to depend on his love. And this is even more important than the last one. Why? Because this is the essence of knowing you're a Christian. Very simply, a Christian is someone who recognizes that God is holy and that they are not. And they place their trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. A Christian is is someone who says, I see, up to this point in my life, I was trying to be a good person. I was trying to be my own Savior. I was trying to make myself in some way acceptable to God. But today I come to the Father and say, please accept me, not, not based upon anything that I can do, but completely because of what Christ has done. His perfect life, his his death for me on the cross. And get this, when you're saved, 
when you accept Christ, you are his. Jesus' perfect record is transferred to your account. You're adopted into the family of God. You're completely accepted in that moment. Folks, there's no waiting period. In that moment, you're his. In that moment, God sees you, he, he pardons you, and he loves you just as if he loves his own son. As a Christian, God sees you in Christ, radiant and beautiful, like his son. It's amazing. This is good news. And hear this, a, a branch does not enhance the life of the vine. A branch only lives off the life of the vine. We don't bring anything to the table. We live because of him. And so to remain in him and his love is to live off his love, to have fuel for life because of his love. And so many of our issues here in life are here because we refuse to abide in his love. We bring trauma into our life because we don't want to live in his love. We want to live in the, the love of others or ourselves. You have a personality conflict. Call it where it really is. It's je jealousy. You're jealous. My jealousy comes from my refusal to see the only person who whose love really counts, whose love really matters. Or maybe I'm afraid of something and I'm anxious, which is sinful. You're anxious. And then we admit it then. We admit it and say we're trying to find security in something or someone and refusing to see the only person whose love that really matters, of whom we're, we're completely secure. The security we have in Christ. Church, the only way you will grow in these areas and many more is to acknowledge that your issues in life are not other people. The issues in life are not outside of you, it's, it's inside of you. It's your refusal to live out the gospel. It's your refusal to, to use the gospel on yourself. It's a refusal to continually say, if I'm his child and I'm perfect, why am I acting like this? You know, how do Christians handle criticism? How do Christians handle a bad childhood? How do Christians handle the fact that they're single and no one's interested in them? How do Christians handle these things? They say, I am a son of the king, the daughter of the king. And my father loves me with a great love. And that's the only riches that count. That's the only love that lasts. This is the only family that truly matters for all of eternity. That's how a Christian handles things. That's living in his love. That's abiding in his love. Remaining in his love. You want to know how to overcome self-pity in your life, the depression, the touchiness, the jealousy, the fear, the worry. It comes from this. It comes from abiding in his love. Until you see that it comes from you refusing to remain in his love and refusing to act on it, to live it out, and until you call the things that are really wrong with your life what they really are, you're never really going to grow. 
you will continue to ride the escalator down and decay. To remain in his love means to say that the great debt that I have has been paid. The, the great disease has been healed. The great relationship has already been sealed and all the other debts and all the other diseases and all the other broken relationships are tiny things. We remain in him. We abide in his love. And when we abide in him, we will have fruit. And we will produce fruit. And Jesus says when we produce fruit, we will be pruned. The knife will come into our life. Do you want to grow? Jesus says you need to be pruned. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is making a claim here, and it's seemingly harsh. If you were to go out into a, a vineyard during the time when they prune, you would see what Jesus is talking about. I once visited a farm a number of years ago this time, and to my untrained eye, I couldn't make much sense of what was going on. When I walked around during the pruning, it looked like a disaster. From what I could tell, the gardener is attacking this poor plant. He's trying to kill it. Because he's, when, he, when he's finished with his task, the ground is covered with all the beautiful things that look like they should still be on the plant. It looks tragic to the untrained eye. You just keep walking through it all and shaking your head, wondering if this gardener knows what he's doing. And you look up at the, the branches, of what's left there, the vine, and it's bleeding in hundreds of places. It's been cut. It looks like it won't survive. It looks like the pruning was a complete waste, that this branch now is of no use. You know, if you have a skilled gardener, there is not one thing that is cut off that would have not been a loss to keep that was gained to lose. Let me say that again. A skilled gardener never cuts off anything, never prunes off anything that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. In other words, everything that was taken off has to be removed from the plant so that it can reach its fullness, its height, its depth, its strength, its potential. Let me bring this home. When Jesus says that pruning will happen, and it will, he will meet, remove things from your life that you put there. Not necessarily bad things, good things. He'll remove dreams that you had. And he'll take them away for our good and for God's glory. And all these awful things that have happened to you, all the troubles and difficulties that have taken things out of your life, the good things, you look down with an untrained eye and you say, this is a pointless waste. There's no reason why I should not have gotten to that school. Why didn't I get that job? I was the most qualified. Why is it that we can't get pregnant? We try and try and we lose and we lose. We want kids. And there's no reason why we lost that person. 
And you think these things should have never happened. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand gardening. There's not one thing I will ever take out of your life that wouldn't have been a loss to keep, but would have been a gain to lose. Jesus says, my father is the gardener. And church, I know that you have troubles. Uh, Jesus knows too. And our charge, our responsibility is to abide in him. You know, he's weaving together our life in ways that doesn't make much sense right now. Maybe you're in the midst of that. But one day on the other side, we will see clearly what he was weaving. Our job is to abide. So we know that we need to abide. I want to talk just briefly as we end here, what happens when we're in Christ, when we abide? What are the benefits? What are things that happen when abiding? And the first one I want to mention is in verse 7. We have power in prayer. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And his promise is basically the same thing that was given in, in chapter 14 by Jesus. And the difference is Christ's word for abiding in us here in this chapter. An example how the body in Christ works was given by Corey Tenboom in one story of her poor but godly father, Casper, which I read this week in Richard Phillips' commentary on John. And he writes, living under Nazi occupation in Holland, their family faced many difficulties and great poverty. On one occasion, they had prayed for God to send a customer to buy a watch so that they could pay all their overdue bills. A customer did come picking out an expensive watch and, and casually remarking, as he paid, that another merchant had sold him a defective watch. Corey's father, Casper, asked the man whether he could examine the watch and, and pointed out that only a minor repair was needed. And he assured the man that he had been sold a fine quality watch by the other merchant and gave his money back as the man returned back the watch he was going to purchase. Little Corey asked her, Papa, why did you do that? Aren't you worried about the bills you have due? Her father replied that it would be not honoring to the Lord to allow another man's reputation to be wrongly harmed, especially since the other merchant was a believer. And he assured the little girl that God would provide. And a few days later, God did. A man came in and bought the most expensive watch in his shop. And through the sale, they paid all of their bills and also paid for two years of Corey's education. The point it would have been very easy for Corey's father to take the money for the watch and even give glory to God for the answer of prayer. But in his conscience, in line with what he knew in the scripture and guiding and abiding in Christ, he waited for God to answer his prayers. God is honored and glorified when we abide in him, when we have power in prayer, he says in verse 7. The second thing is we will glorify God in verse 8. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. God is glorified when we bear fruit through our obedience to his word. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory 
to your Father who is in heaven. In 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And they will speak against your, your deeds. They will call us evildoers. We will see that next week in the second half of chapter 15, Lord willing. We showcase God when we abide in him and obey his word. We glorify him in this way. Third, we will have joy. Look at verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Think of this. God desires for our joy to be full. The Greek term is, is to be complete, all we need. What do you do at Thanksgiving time besides watch football? You eat for the purpose of what? To be stuffed, right? You know that feeling on, on Thanksgiving when you're stuffed? You just can't have any more? That's what he's talking about here. To be full, to be stuffed. So satisfied that you take a three-hour nap. You just, you're stuffed, you're, you're, you're complete. This is what he's saying. This is what our joy to be complete, to be stuffed. And how many of us this week have been running after the world to fill our joy? We look for it in a person. We're married, we have kids, so we need to find joy there, right? We come away disappointed. Now, has this thought gripped your heart this week that God delights to love us? He doesn't just do it because he has to. He delights to do it. God doesn't have to do anything. Let me read a verse out of Zephaniah that the Lord brought across my, my thinking and my study this week. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Oh, he sings over us like a, like a dad does at night over his kids. You know, and in John here, he says, our, our joy is on his mind. Our joy is on his mind. It's astounding. And our joy will be full. Next, we have a friend, he says here. We have a friend. Look at verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That just blew me away this week calls us friends. It should astound us. J.C. Ryle says, for sinful men and women like ourselves to be called friends of Christ is something that our weak minds can hardly grasp and take in. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, not only pities and saves all of that believe in him, but actually calls us his friends. What a thought. We are friends with God. What does it mean to be a friend? Have you, have you thought about that before? A friend is someone who lets you all the way in, right? 
Some of them all the way in. You've heard it. I've said it. You know, my best human friend in this world is my spouse because she knows all of me, the good and the bad. She knows me. I've let her in. And many of you say the same thing of your spouse, but even it doesn't necessarily have to be a spouse, to be a, a close friend, as we say. It's people that we're willing to let our, go, our guard down for, people that we open up ourselves to. They know us. They, they literally can ask us anything. So translate that into what Jesus is saying. You are my friends. Jesus is no longer giving them just bits and pieces of information on what he's going to do. No, he's letting them in on the full plan. He's opening up himself to these men and bringing them into what God is doing. This is friendship. It doesn't just stop there. Jesus says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, this is Christianity in a sentence. Jesus, the greatest example of what true friendship is, lays down his life for his friends. This is substitutional atonement. Jesus wasn't tragically killed and it came out of the blue. It didn't surprise him one day. And he wasn't coerced or forced to do it either. Jesus chose to lay down his life. And greater love has no one than this, that someone, Jesus, laid down his life for his friends, those that would believe. What amazing news. What a glorious gospel that we have. Jesus laying down his life for us and knowing us all the details of our wickedness, knowing all of our sins and every corrupt twist of our hearts, but loving us nonetheless and giving his life for our salvation. Praise God. So what's the purpose? What's the end of all this? Verse 16 and 17, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, it's true that to believe in Christ is to choose him, but the greater reality is that, we, that he first elected us or chose us, and we decided for him only as response to his choosing of us as a result of his grace that first worked in our lives. And Paul says it so clearly in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And not only chose us, he appointed us to go and to bear fruit in his name. That is our charge. That is our joyous responsibility, a privilege to serve him. My non-Christian friends that are here this morning, would you like to know God? The first step is admitting that you don't. Recognizing that God is holy and you're not. And because of this, he cannot have anything to do with you. And in yourself, 
and your sin, he can't have anything to do with you. Our, our sins then have plunged us into deep despair. But God, God, God sent his son as our substitute. He came to die for you, my friend. To take the penalty of your sins on himself. Trust in Christ, friend. Trust in him. Trust in him for salvation. That is the only way to have friendship with God. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion as a church family. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. And so parents that are here and you'd like your kids to be a part of it, it's a chance where you can step out and go get your kids for the communion service. If you're here this morning, you know Jesus as your Savior. We invite you to partake of the service and remember his sacrifice for you on the cross. Folks, if you're here and you're not trusting in Christ, we would encourage you not to partake of the communion service. We want to sit down and talk with you. We want to, we want to share with you as, as pastors and elders the glorious gospel that you can understand what it means to be his. We would love to sit down and talk with you and walk through the gospel with you. So men, as you come forward to serve communion, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again for the opportunity we have to now come before your communion table. And in this service, God, we recognize and we remember again your sacrifice for us on the cross. And we acknowledge, God, that we did not deserve this. But of grace, you came. God, you sent your son to come and to live among us, to teach us, to show us the way back to God. And he went to the cross and he took our sins upon himself. And he died that gruesome death so that we could have life. We remember. God, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in this communion service. For we ask it all in your son's precious name. Amen.